A person can't survive long without hope. And that's the theme of the sermon series we started last week. Um, And particularly, we're looking at the hope that the Bible gives us beyond death. Now, we know that uh, we need hope even just day to day. Right? Most of us wake up in the morning hoping that it's going to be a good day. That's what gets us out of bed. right? And then if it wasn't as good as we were wanting, then we go to sleep hoping the next day is going to be better. Uh, in a circumstance like we're in right now, we hope that this doesn't last long. We hope things go back to normal soon or able to go back to normal soon. Um, but everybody lives with some kind of hope. Even the person on uh, in prison on death row right, lives with some kind of hope, hoping for one more day, hoping for one more good thing to happen, however small it may be. Those who have experienced uh, real depression know that this is what part of makes depression so terrible is it begins to rob you of every ounce of hope that you have. And when you no longer have any hope, it's hard to go on. So, most of those little daily hopes that we have that are, are so essential uh, to keep us going, most of those hopes, if not all of those hopes, are eventually defeated by death. There eventually comes a day that is your last day, where there is nothing else in this life, at least, to look forward to. So, what do you do when that time approaches, or when that fear uh, begins to take hold of you. The only kind of hope that can survive in the face of death is a hope of life after death, life beyond the grave. Now, some people are of the opinion that uh, to have any hope for life uh, beyond death is a, is a childish hope. Right? That's just a wish, it's just a dream that some people use to help them get through Hard things, but people who are mature enough and you know rational enough to deal with reality know that there's there is no hope after this life. As Christians, we beg to differ. As Christians, we know that that's not the case. We know that for everyone who trusts in Christ, there is hope not only for this life but also after this life. And our chief evidence for that is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Our Lord and God and Savior came to this earth and lived a fully, truly human life and died and rose again and was taken up into heaven. And His resurrection demonstrates that God has something planned for us beyond just this life. So what does the Bible have to say about that? That's what we're focusing on as we lead up to Easter. Last week we looked at the big picture of how the story of the Bible starts and how it ends and how uh, the ending of the story tells us that God has more planned for us uh, than just Uh, what's going to happen to us after we die, which the Bible says when a believer dies, our spirit goes into the presence of God, and that's a good thing. Paul says that's even, that's better than than staying here. 
But the Bible tells us there's a, a further hope. The Bible ends with a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, with believers resurrected, having immortal bodies to live in the presence of God in a, uh, in a world untainted by sin and death. And that's our ultimate hope. That's where everything is headed. Well, this morning, I want us to look at uh, the evidence for that hope in the Old Testament. What did the Old Testament saints have to hope in? What about Abraham? What about Isaiah? What were they anticipating? What were they hoping for? What was God promising to them? And I want us to look at that not only because it's an interesting question to think about, right? what, what did the Old Testament saints, what hope did they have? But also because the better we understand what God was promising in the Old Testament and what the Old Testament believers were hoping for, the better we will understand what Jesus accomplished for us when he came to put the, the yes to all of God's promises. When he came to fulfill all the hopes of Israel that God had given to his people in the Old Testament. And the better we understand how Jesus fulfilled the hope that God had given them in the Old Testament, the better we will understand the hope that God has given us in Christ now on this side of the New Testament. So I want you to open your Bible, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be... Um, kind of all over the place this morning. So if you're the kind of person that likes to take notes, you might just want to jot down these scripture references as they come. You probably won't be able to turn to all of them. I won't be able to turn to all of them. I've got them printed in front of me. Um, but um, we're going to start in Genesis 3 uh, because Genesis 3 is both where the problem starts and where the hope starts. We saw last week that there are at least three problems that Genesis 3 outlines for us that God answers with promises of hope. The first problem, of course, is sin. That Adam and Eve sinned against God. He'd given them one command to obey. They rebelled against it. They didn't just sort of accidentally step out of line. They consciously chose to do exactly the opposite of what God said. And ever since then, their sin, their sin has tainted all of humanity. All of us are born with a sinful nature. So the first problem is sin. The second problem is death. God warned Adam and Eve that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that on that day they would die. And we saw that means not just physical death, but that is a part of it, but also spiritual death, being cut off from God's presence. So there's the problem of sin, there's the problem of death, and then there was also the problem of the curse on creation. God uh, multiplied pain and childbearing for women. He uh, cursed the, the ground so that it would uh, bring up thorns and thistles. And he told Adam, you're going to have to uh, get your bread by the sweat of your brow. You're going to break your back just trying to live. Right? So all of those things that make our life toilsome, painful, back-breaking, difficult, all of that is a result of sin and the curse, and of course all that uh, culminates in death. So what did God do and what did God say to give his people hope in the face of such a terrible curse, in the face of the reality of death, 
and in the face of their own sin that separates them from God. That's what we're going to see in, uh, throughout the Old Testament this morning in a, in a number of places. Well, the first place I want to draw your attention to is Genesis 3, 21. Uh, this is after uh, God has spoken the curse uh, upon the creation and told Adam and Eve what's going to happen as a result of their sin. And in Genesis 3.21 it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Uh, this is the first hint in the Bible of how God is going to deal with our sin. <clears throat> right? With our sin. That was how all this problem started. Right? With Adam and Eve's sin against God. And their response when they sinned, before they sinned, God brought the woman to the man, and the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. But as soon as they sinned, they became fearful and ashamed. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, but God uh, had something better for them. He uh, provided garments of skins and clothed them. Now, we live in a time where a lot of people don't know where certain things come from. They don't know where their food comes from. They don't know where their clothes come from. But any Israelite hearing this story would know where these skins came from. Skins come from animals. And the way you get animal skins is by killing them. And usually the reason why you kill an animal is to offer a sacrifice to God. So when these animal skins were provided for Adam and Eve, it was not just, it was not just God saying, here, let me provide some clothing for you. It was God, I think we can read between the lines and say, in a sense, offering the first animal sacrifice, shedding the first blood to cover sin. It was the first hint of how God was going to deal with our sin through the shedding of blood, in other words. We get stronger teaching about this as we go throughout the Bible. You get to Exodus chapter 12 when Egypt, or the Hebrews are in Egypt in slavery and God has poured out the nine uh, plagues of judgment upon the Egyptians but Pharaoh has refused to let them go. And God says, here's the last one. I'm going to kill the firstborn sons of all the people in Egypt. But for my people, if you will take a lamb and kill it, sacrifice it, and take its blood and put it over the doorposts, then when I come in judgment to kill the firstborn sons of the, of the Egyptians, my judgment will pass over the houses where the blood has been shed. Not because the Israelites were innocent or automatically exempt, that their firstborn sons didn't die. It was because God had provided atonement for them, a substitute for them. An animal died in their place so that their firstborn sons would not. And then when you get to the book of Leviticus, where there are numerous instructions about how all the sacrifices in the Old Testament are supposed to operate, the very first sacrifice we're given instructions about in Leviticus chapter 1 is called the burnt offering. There are numerous different offerings, and they had different functions and different emphases, but the burnt offering was clearly an offering for sin. And in Leviticus 1.4, we're told what the worshiper is supposed to do who comes to make this burnt offering. It says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the 
burnt offering, the animal he's going to offer as a burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. In other words, when the man or woman or whoever comes to offer the sacrifice, when they put their hand upon that animal, it is a a way of them identifying with the, the animal that's about to be sacrificed in their place, saying, this animal is dying for me. This animal is functioning as a substitute for me. Its blood is being shed to atone for my sin. Now we know the Bible says in Hebrews 10.4 that it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. We needed a better sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ. His once for all sacrifice is the only sacrifice that really truly takes away sin. But the Passover lamb, the burnt offerings, all those sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, all of those were ways of teaching and showing God's people, this is how I'm going to deal with your sin. Somebody else is going to have to make the payment for you. Somebody else is going to have to die. There's going to have to be a substitute. They were looking forward to the time when their sins would be truly and totally atoned for. And we know that happened at the cross. But all throughout the Old Testament, they're, they're anticipating that. They're, giving, they're being given hope of forgiveness. In the Psalms, they celebrate this forgiveness uh, that God has promised. I'll, I'll just give you one. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So all throughout the Old Testament, God is showing His people how He will forgive them. He is uh, teaching them that He will forgive them if they trust in His Word, if they turn to Him, if they confess their sin. There was forgiveness for them just as there is forgiveness for us. They were looking forward to the coming of Christ dimly, but they were looking forward to the coming of Christ just as we look back to the cross of Christ. So, um, we know that that's why Jesus came, right? For the forgiveness of sin. Even His name, Jesus, we're told in Matthew 1.21, that He was to be called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. The name Jesus is the, the Old Testament name Joshua, which means God saves or Yahweh saves. He came to be call, He was called Jesus because He came to save His people from their sins. And when He celebrated the Lord's Supper on that that last supper before he went to the cross. He took the cup and told his disciples in Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus came. And that's what all the Old Testament saints were hoping for, looking forward to, trusting in that God would deal with our sin. But We don't merely need our sin forgiven. We do need that. But even once our sin is forgiven, we've we've still got this problem of death. 
Right? The wages of sin is death. So the, the, the big problem about sin is that it separates us from God and that it uh, brings about the end of our physical life. So what is God going to do about that? If He just forgives our sin but does not deal with death, we've still got a serious problem. So what did He say and do in the Old Testament to show His people that He would also do something about death? Well, uh, first of all, remember that death has to do not only with our physical bodies dying, but also being cut off from fellowship with God. And all throughout the Old Testament, God was showing His people that He had a plan, He had a purpose to restore His presence among them. Remember, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, but they were sent out of the garden away from His presence because of His sin. Is there any hint in the Old Testament that God is going to sort of turn that back, set that right again. There is. One of the earliest ones is in Genesis chapter 5. Right? Genesis chapter 5, you know this man Enoch. Right? Genesis chapter 5 is a, uh, in some sense, terribly depressing chapter. The refrain of the chapter is, so-and-so lived so many years and he died. Right? And he died, and he died, and he died. He had sons and daughters. And live this many more years, and then he died. And then we get to, get to this guy named Enoch, and we're told Enoch walked with God. Well, isn't that what Adam and Eve did in the garden? God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and now here's Enoch who's walking with God. Now, no doubt it was not the same for Enoch as it was for Adam and Eve, because there is still sin that has affected the world and affected our fellowship with God. But Enoch's not been totally cut off. He has some sense of fellowship with God in some ways like what Adam and Eve lost. So there's already a hint in Enoch's life that God intends to fellowship with his people once again, to walk with them once again. But then the big one is the instruction that God gives to Moses about building the tabernacle, which was later replaced by the temple. What was the purpose of, of the tabernacle. There were lots of things that went on there. Right? But when God said, build me a tabernacle, the first thing he said was not, build me a tabernacle so that you have a place to offer sacrifices for your sin. That was part of what the tabernacle was for, but that's not the thing that God emphasized. When God gave Moses instructions for the tabernacle, he said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Part of the reason so many sacrifices had to be offered at the tabernacle is because God was dwelling there in the midst of a sinful people, and in order for Him to dwell with them and not destroy them, their sin had to be repeatedly dealt with. Day after day, morning and evening, sacrifices had to be offered. But the purpose of the tabernacle and later of the temple was for God to dwell with them again. That's why when the tabernacle was completed, the cloud of God's presence that had led them through the uh, wilderness came to rest upon the tabernacle. And when the temple was completed and dedicated, God's glory, again with that cloud, filled the temple so that the priests could not even minister there to show the people that God had come once again to dwell with them. And all of that that God was showing them, all that hope that He was giving them of Him restoring His presence among them, all of that was leading up to that grand climactic vision in Revelation 21 and 22 where we're told 
God's dwelling place is with man. He will dwell with them and he will be their God. And even when John sees the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city come down to the new earth that God has created and established, he tells us there was no temple in that city. Why? Because God's not there? No, because God is there. The whole thing is the holy of holies. The whole thing is the dwelling place of God because God is once again going to dwell with us. So he's going to restore his presence among us. He's also going to restore our physical life. He is going to conquer death. Well, how is he going to do that? What hints do we have about that? Well, we go back to Enoch again. What happened to Enoch, this man who walked with God? In a chapter where we're told again and again, He lived this many years and he died. He lived this many years and he died. He lived this many years and he died. We're told that Enoch was taken up. And he was no more. We're not told that he died. We're told that God took him. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him, Genesis 5, 24 says. Well, what does that mean? We don't get a lot of details at that point, right? But... The little that we are told makes it sound like in some way God has taken Enoch, perhaps spared him from death, and taken Enoch in some way to be in God's presence somewhere. That's, I mean, that's about all you can say in Genesis 5. But the further we go in the Bible, the more information we get about what happens to people who trust in God, who walk with God when they die. We know they go into God's presence, right, into a place of blessing. Jesus even uh, draws on that passage from Exodus chapter 3 where God says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he says to the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, you guys have gotten it wrong because you don't actually believe how, you know, that God is as powerful as he really is, and you don't understand the scriptures because in Exodus 3, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have all long since died. But God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their bodies have died and they're buried. But in in other sense, they're alive. And God is still their God, which means they must still be experiencing the blessing of God. They're somehow, somewhere in God's presence. So there's life beyond death, but then there's also uh, something even beyond that. In Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah says, as clearly as he can say it, in beautiful poetry, he says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Clearly, Isaiah is telling the people of God to have hope, because there is going to be a day of resurrection, when those who have died and whose bodies have returned to the dust will be raised once more will be restored and resurrected. That's not just a New Testament hope. That's an Old Testament hope too. Think about the picture that Ezekiel paints in Ezekiel 37. These dry bones 
covering the ground. And God says to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel says, oh Lord, you know. And what does God do? God raises this army from the dead, clothes them with skin and sinews, breathes the breath, the breath of life into him, gives him resurrection, gives them resurrection life. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, is probably the clearest uh, prophecy about the resurrection in the Old Testament. Daniel 12, 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to, uh, to shame and everlasting contempt. But they will awake. There will be bodily resurrection at some point in the future. That's the hope even of the Old Testament. So the, God is showing His people, I'm going to defeat death, physical death and spiritual death. I'm going to raise you from the dead. I'm going to bring you back into my presence. I'm going to restore all that has gone wrong. And the last thing is the curse. What about the curse? If we, are, if we have our sins forgiven, and we have our bodies raised, and we're restored to God's presence, but we still have to live in a world that's dominated by the curse, by disease and sickness and cancer and death and fear and anxiety and all these kinds of things. I mean, I guess that's better, but it's still not all we would have wanted, all we would have hoped for. But God promises us something better. God promises that He will deal with the creation, uh, the curse on creation as well. Again, we can go all the way back to the early days of the Bible and look at what happened in the days of Noah and see there the hope that God had given to His people all the way back then, even before Abraham. When Noah was born, his father... <clears throat> Gave him the name Noah. And the name Noah sounds like the Hebrew word that means rest or relief. Right? And often in the Bible, people get named uh, things that sound like things people are hoping for or trusting in or believing in. And so it's no different with Noah. Genesis 5.29 says that his father called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed... This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah's father was hoping that in some way Noah would help to turn back the curse. Give us some relief from the curse on the ground. Now, did he? Yes and no. I mean, obviously not totally. But what did happen with Noah? There was a flood, right, of God's judgment that covered all the earth. But God spared Noah and his family in the ark, as well as uh, the animals that lived on the earth. And then when the flood subsided, when it was over, what happened? Noah stepped out into what was, in some way, a new creation. God spoke to him very much like he had spoken to Adam. When God created the first man and the first woman, He said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the same thing He said to Noah. Why? Because in a sense, Noah is sort of a new Adam. Now the earth is still under the curse, but there's a picture there of a fresh start. There's still sin in the world. There's still a curse, but there is sort of a, uh, again, a fresh start, a cleansing that happened, a picture of what God could do. 
And then we think, well, that's, you know, I can kind of see that, but that seems to be stretching it a little bit. Think about how Peter talks about the days of Noah in 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter 3, he says, there's going to be people who scoff at the idea of a great worldwide cataclysmic judgment. They say, nothing like that has ever happened before. It's not going to happen in the future. Nobody needs to be worried about you know, the return of Christ and this big worldwide judgment. Peter says, oh yeah? What about the flood? Wasn't that a worldwide judgment? Hasn't God done this kind of thing before? He has. And then at the end of of that discussion where he's brought in Noah, he says this. He says in 2 Peter 3.13, But according to his promise, God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, he doesn't directly connect that to Adam, I mean to Noah, but it is loosely connected. And I think it's a legitimate, uh, a legitimate connection that we can make based on what Peter says and what Genesis says and what the rest of the Bible says. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, is not limited to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 65, 17, God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66, 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. In Isaiah 55, 13, he says, instead of the thorn, which is part of the curse, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And let's not forget Isaiah 11, where it says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is that but a picture of creation that has been under the curse for so long now being released and set free and restored to the original goodness that God designed for it. So the hope we have in the face of our own sin, in the face of death, in the face of the curse that shapes so much about our existence in this world The hope that we have in the face of all those things is the same hope that the Old Testament saints had. That God would forgive our sin. That God would restore His presence among us. That God would raise us from the dead. That God would prepare for us a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth where we could dwell with Him and where there would be righteousness and peace and joy forever. And that all of that would be brought about through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a hope that unites us with Abraham and with Isaiah and with Daniel and Ezekiel and Enoch for that matter. It's a hope that all 
Christians share. I hope that we can carry with us when things are hard, when people are anxious, when we don't know what tomorrow holds, uh, we know what the future holds because we know God holds the future in his hand and he's told us what he's going to do, what he's promised he will do. And so we uh, take comfort from that and rejoice in what he has done for us through his son. So let's take a moment to pray and give thanks.